If you notice today, we had some of our students helping out with the service today. And that's something that we do every fifth Sunday. We want to give our students the opportunity to participate in the service because this service is for them as well, not just the adults. Uh, so Christ died for their sins just as he did for ours. So I want to thank those who helped out today. Marriage is covenant. That is what we see when we look at marriage through the lenses of the lens of creation. First, at his inception, marriage was given to Adam for his good by the Lord God so that Adam can have the best companion of his life. And that companion was his like opposite, a woman, not another man. And so marriage is between one man and one woman. Second, we saw that the nature of this marriage between one man and one woman is covenant, in which both spouses take covenant vows to be a covenant spouse to one another. Third, we saw last week that these covenant spouses are to function as one flesh within their marriage. One flesh. And now today we're going to talk about the individual roles of covenant spouses. So men, are you ready? Women, are you ready? Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. This is God's word, not Alex's. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let, us, let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all things, and every creeping, every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your truth, we call out upon your Holy Spirit that he will come and he will speak through me, Father, to my own heart first. For I need your truth. I am a sinner just like all of us. And I need to be convicted of sin. I need to be consoled. I need to be encouraged. All those things, Lord, I need the same things. So Holy Spirit, if you don't move, nothing happens. Period. I don't care how good sermons are. If the Spirit of God doesn't move, nothing happens in our hearts. So, Holy Spirit, we call upon you, our helper, to come and help us this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with e-cards. E-cards are electronic greeting cards that's sent over the Internet. This week, I came across one. Uh, with a picture of a woman. She was holding a day timer in one hand, and in the other hand, she had her cell phone to her ear, and she was talking to someone. On the card, she said, Hello, 1950s. You have left your oppressive ginger rolls in our century. Can you please come pick them up? Hello, 1950s. 
You have left your oppressive gender roles in our century. Can you please come pick them up? That's funny, but yet it is an accurate reflection of how our culture sees gender roles. In his book, Divorce of Reason, Brian McGill says, it is the socially determined norms and traditions of gender roles which must be challenged and challenged with vigor. In nearly all countries, including America, the truth is that women have a low social status and are considered inferior. Gender roles are, are seen as bad, negative, oppressive, out of date in our progressive modern times. Society says, you don't need these roles. We have progressed beyond them. But is society right? Are gender roles really the core problem? Are they really the core problem? Should we strive to be gender neutral? Are gender roles simply a product of a socially, culturally outdated period in our history? I say no. These roles did not come into existence in the 1950s, but they were put in place at the very beginning of time and creation. Even if people don't affirm it, even if people don't accept it, gender, gender and gender roles are important, particularly when it comes to family and marriage. First, we need to affirm and accept the truth that one's gender is good. Have you ever thought about that? That one's gender is good. The Lord God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and all that's on the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female. He created them. To understand the roles of a covenant spouse, you have to go back to creation. You have to go back to Genesis. Because you have to understand that the role of a husband and the role of a wife did not come into existence in the 1950s. They did not come into existence when the New Testament was written. These roles in marriage were put into place by the Lord God doing his work of creation. And so what does that mean? It means that he alone has authority over gender. He alone has authority over gender roles in marriage. And he alone sets the standards for these roles. And here's the point we have to take to heart. His standards, his authority are still in place even if people are in sinful rebellion against them, either through neglect, abuse, or abandonment. What he puts in place is still in place even if we rebel. Now, men and women, when it comes to your role in marriage and family, you have to understand that your role is not the essence of who you are as a person. I'll say that again. Your gender role in marriage and family is not the essence of who you are as a human being. 
In other words, your gender role is not the source of your value, your dignity, and your worth. Your role is not the source of your value, your dignity, and your worth. And also, it is not the straw that breaks the camel's back of those things either. Sin is. Sin is the straw that breaks the camel's back of your value, dignity, and worth, not your role. You see, the source of your value, your dignity, and worth as a human being is spelled out before us in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which says, male and female, he created them in his own image. Keep in mind here that Genesis 1 and 2 presents God as the sovereign creator of the universe. And he created all things in the space of six days, and all was created what? Good. And the most excellent work of all his creation was who? Male and female. Man. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And the Hebrew term for man is generic for all mankind here. All human beings. Not one particular person was created in his image. All human beings was created in God's image. John Frame says, an image resembles and it represents the one it pictures. John Frame says, an image represents and resembles the one it pictures. All human beings are image bearers of God, which means you were created to represent him and to resemble him in your life. Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God created man, male and female, in his own image, and knowledge and righteousness and holiness will rule over the creatures. Your capacity for relationships, for love, for creativity, for reason, all comes from the fact that you were created in the image of God. I hope you know that. All the great things that man has made, where do you think that comes from? He's creating God's image. That's why. That's why. Your value, your dignity, your worth as a human being comes from the fact that you are created in God's image. That's the source of it, not your role. You being created in the image of God is good. It's wonderful. Adam and Eve, as we know, as our first parents, they resembled and represented God perfectly before Genesis 3. Genesis 3 changed everything. Everything changed in Genesis 3. But before Genesis 3 comes, everything in the world was as it was created to be, right and perfect. Mankind was in right relationship with God. Mankind was in right relationship with one another. Adam and Eve understood that their value and dignity and worth came from the truth, that they were image bearers of God. That's where they got that value from, the dignity from, and the worth from. Think about that. They also knew that both of them were equally created in God's image. Think about that. Before Genesis 3, they both knew that they were equally created in God's image. This is something that must be affirmed and accepted. You see, Eve was not second tier or second class to Adam in God's creative works nor did she have to start a movement to gain equality with Adam. She was created to be 
his equal. The problem is we have not lived up to what God has created because of sin. Because when he created the woman, she was created with equality. We have failed to live up to what God has ordained. That's the problem. Equality between the man and woman was put in place during the work of creation. And it was what? Good. He did not create the woman to be less than the man, but to be his equal in value, worth, and dignity. She was created to be equal with him in value, worth, and dignity. And yet, they were created to be complementary of each other as well. Why? Because they were like opposites. They were not the same person. They were like opposites. They were male and female to complement one another. Adam and Eve were created equal, yet they were distinguished by their gender. Adam was created male. Eve was created female on purpose. God didn't make a mistake. He didn't have a, oh, 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 man, I made a mistake here. I made a mistake here. No, no mistakes at all. Man is male by divine design. Woman is female by divine design. Gender was determined at creation, and it was what? No, no, it was very good. Very good. Not just good, very good. It's part of being created in the image of God. Your gender is good, and it must be affirmed, and it must be accepted. Tories of Us in the U.K., I read this online this week, is going to adopt gender neutrality. They plan to remove all gender assignments from all their toys in the U.K. Why? Because they have brought into this gender neutrality movement. There's, this movement seeks to break free from traditional gender roles because they believe if you distinguish roles based upon a person's gender, that leads to abuse, that leads to discrimination. So they want all human beings to just be seen as a human being. Don't have to see gender. And so they have their own symbol, the gender neutral symbol. It's a purple circle, no more crosses and no more arrows. Now, I believe abuse and discrimination are both bad and evil. But gender and gender roles are not the problem. The problem is our sin. And that's coming next week. Problem is our sin. When a person tries to deny their gender, they are denying a part of who they are. Denying a part of how God has created them. And to me, it's a self-inflicting wound when you do that. It's a self-inflicting wound to your own soul when you deny how God has made you. Tim Keller says, God did not make us generic humanity. Rather, from the start, we are male and female. Every cell in our body is stamped either XX or XY. This means I cannot understand myself if I try to ignore the way God had designed me. If our gender is at the heart of our nature, however, we really risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive male and female roles. Keller says again, if our gender is at the heart of our nature, however, we risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive male and female roles. Like our gender, 
our gender roles are also good. And these roles must be accepted, affirmed, but do we? Remember, John Frame says, uh, an image resembles and represents the one that it pictures. As the image bearer of God, what does it mean to represent him? Genesis 1.27 says, let, let them have dominion. The them in that verse is talking about the male and female in verse 27. Both male and female represent God when they exercise dominion or rule. One of the ways we exercise dominion and represent God is in the role he created us to serve in, our gender role. One pastor says, in Genesis 3, 1 and 3, Moses provides a series of more or less obvious hints as to his doctrine of manhood and womanhood. Moses has given us a hint of what manhood and womanhood looks like here. And gender roles are here in the first chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 2, we get, a, we get hints of the role of man and woman. First, we see that Adam was created first, and that was not an accident. That, again, was intentional by Yahweh. He was put in the garden to do what? To work it, to keep it. And third, he was commanded to exercise freedom with limits. He was commanded, he said, God told him, you can eat freely from every tree in the garden, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And he was told the consequence of eating of that tree, you will surely die if you do. And fourth, he named all the animals the Lord brought to him. So what do we see from Adam? We see Adam exercising dominion and responsibility in leadership and authority. He was responsible to work and keep the garden. We see his leadership and authority is seen in him being created first and naming the animals. And we also see that he was also under leadership and authority. Don't forget that. He was also under leadership and authority. Genesis 2.16 showed Adam that I have leadership and authority, but my leadership and authority is not ultimate. To the point where I become the center. To the point where it becomes all about me. See, Adam knew that he was not the source of the garden or the animals. He was not the creator of those things. He was just put in charge of them. In fact, he was not the source of his own creation. You see, his responsibility, his leadership, and his authority were all delegated from above. All delegated to him. They were part of the role that God has given him. And he was supposed to exercise that responsibility and leadership and authority under divine leadership and authority. He don't remove himself for being under God. He does his role under God. And that dictates the type of man he was going to be. And you move from under God, that's when you get abuse, that's when you get abandonment, that's when you get sin. But in the beginning, it was supposed to be like this. It was supposed to mirror God's authority and leadership. Adam was trading God's image to represent God and to resemble him. So let's just put it on the table. God gave man, Adam, the role of headship. That's his role. Now, please understand, biblical headship is not dictatorship and it's not domination. When Paul says a husband is the head of his wife, it doesn't mean he has dominion over her or to be her dictator. This means the husband has the headship role in family in terms of authority, responsibility, and leadership. 
One pastor defines male headship this one pastor defines male headship this way. He says, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead that partnership in a God glorifying direction. What is male headship? In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead that partnership in a God-glorifying direction. That's what all male hellship is. The man take responsibility to lead his family wisely. And at this point, Adam affirmed and accepted this as good. What about you, men? What about you? One of my favorite scenes in my big fat Greek wedding is the scene where the mother and daughter was having this conversation on the bad, uh, conversation about her dad. The daughter says, Mom, dad is so stubborn. What he says goes. Oh, the man is the head of the house. The mom said, let me tell you this. The man is the head of the house, but the woman is the neck. She can turn it any way she wants. <laughs> it's funny. But, but yet it communicates to us that there are roles in family and marriage. The husband had the role of headship, and the wife has the role of helper. Picture for a moment. How would I look if I had no neck right now? My head needs my neck. It supports my head. It helps my head. And every husband needs his wife, her support, and her help. That's why God gave her to you, to help you, to support you. Strip, the word teaches us, that the woman was created for man. That's clearly in the Bible. And it is seen right here in Genesis 2 when God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The woman was created from the rib that God took from the man. And remember, the term helper, we, have, we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, it communicates more than assisting someone. It, it's in the Old Testament, the term is used of military aid or help, like providing needed reinforcement in the midst of battle. The term is always used of God in the Old Testament, of his divine assistance. You see, Adam was getting a strong helper who was going to make up what was lacking in him. Pastor Legan Duncan says, Adam's helper is a picture of God coming to aid and rescue man. Adam's helper is a picture of God coming to aid and rescue man. See, the Lord God, he, 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 he not only has leadership and authority over us, he also helps us. You see, the, the woman's role is not a secondary role, but a necessary role. She was delegated responsibility, leadership, and authority to be a helper to her husband from God. And she exercised that authority. She exercised this while under God's authority. In marriage, the wife is supposed to exercise dominion in the role of a strong, needed helper. At this point, Eve affirmed and accepted her role as good. What about you, ladies? In fact, at this point, both spouses affirmed and accepted each other's role as good. That's good. In marriage, a husband and a wife are to be complementary of each other in their roles that God has set for them. The role of headship and the role of helper has nothing to do with your value, your dignity, and worth. 
that you've been created in the image of God. That's where those things come from. You see, after the Lord God created male and female in his image, he blessed them. Then he gave them the creation mandate. After they were married, after they became into covenant, he gave them the the creation mandate in Genesis 1.28 where he says he blessed them and he told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. That came after the marriage covenant, not before. To subdue and to have dominion are reference to ruling and governing. God commissioned Adam and Eve to have to, to, to govern the earth and the other creatures with care and responsibility, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. It's talking about procreation, to create life. Like companionship, procreation is another purpose of marriage. The Lord God wanted them to have offspring. Do you think it is by accident that there is only one way human beings can create life? Is that a mistake? Two men together would never create life. Two women together would never create life. There ain't nothing, there is no scientist can change that. No doctor you can go to that's going to change that. It's by divine design that the only way humans can create life is by male and female being together. And that together is supposed to be in the covenant of marriage, not outside of marriage. In a sense, Yahweh was telling Adam and Eve, I want y'all to give me some grandkids, basically. <laughs> Papa Yahweh. <laughs> Papa Yahweh. Malachi. Malachi 2, Malachi 2.15 says, Did not God make them one, that's Adam and Eve, with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Malachi 2.15. Did not the one God, did not God make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. We see here that the Lord God had a vision for family at the very beginning of creation. And he mandated our first parents to generate offspring. In doing so, they would multiply and they would fill the earth as a growing family that would span generations. They were to be a family in right relationship with Yahweh and a family in right relationship with one another. And in that family, the man had the role of headship and the wife had the role of helper. And they are to be complementary. Of each other. Now, what does this mean for us? It means each husband or soon to be husband, you must affirm and accept your role seriously and live it out graciously. It means each wife or soon to be wife must affirm and accept her role seriously and live it out graciously. It also means your kids are God's gift to you. And you both bear responsibility to raising them to fear Yahweh. You both 
are to sit before them ungodly example of what family and marriage are supposed to look like. That husband, if you want to be a good father to your son, then love your wife well. Wives, if you want to be a good mom to your daughter, then love your husband well. Because if you don't, you're not being one. Now, this is not in my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. When, when Miley Cyrus did her thing on TV, I, had, I heard all these moms talking about my daughters. Let this be a lesson to you. Don't end up like Miley. So they put Miley Cyrus in this category of, of, of women, girls, they didn't want their daughter to be like. Now, if you are a bad wife, you need to put yourself in that same category. Dads, if you say to your son, I don't want my son to be like Robin Thicke, but if you are a bad husband to your wife, put yourself in that same category of a man you don't want your son to be like. That's what, that's what I'm talking about. You have a, a responsibility when it comes to teaching your kids what family and marriage looks like. You do. You shape that. The world doesn't shape that. You shape that. Take it seriously. Graciously. Fight for it. Now, if you're not married, and if you're lonely, my advice to you is don't listen to the voice of the enemy. Because he whispers things to you. Go to the Lord. Take your loneliness to the Lord. Tell him your heart's desire. Ask him to shape you into the man or woman you would need to be. Ask him to bring someone into your life if you desire to be married. Ask him to help you to be patient with his timing. For four weeks, we've been looking at marriage through the lenses of creation. And then we see that it's covenant. And I've been showing you, basically, this is what marriage was intended to be. But the reality is that our marriages are not that. Our families are not that. And I know for four sermons, your toes are swollen, hurt, and so are mine. I'm writing this. How do you think I feel? And see, there is a reason why our marriages and our families are not what they created to be. And we're going to get into that next week. Because when you look at marriage through the lenses of the fall, you see that marriage is hard and even sometimes broken. When you look at marriage through the lenses of the fall, we see that marriage is hard and even sometimes broken. And we're going to get into that next week. All marriages are hard, and many of us can testify to that. It's hard trying to be the best companion for your spouse because sometimes your spouse gets on your nerves. It's hard to be a covenant spouse trying to keep those covenant vows because your spouse gets on your nerves. It's hard functioning as one flesh because both of you are selfish. It's hard to affirm and accept gender roles in families. Why? Because either some roles are abandoned or sometimes they are abused. And so it's hard affirming and accepting them. Sometimes you feel like, what have I gotten myself into? Sometimes you feel like you're at war. You feel beat up. You feel bloody, taken advantage of, and you feel used. And sometimes you want to call it quits. You want to throw in the towel and say, I'm done. And sometimes you're going to lay awake at night wondering, is it still worth it? Is it still worth it? Is it going to get better? 
Is there hope for my marriage and for my family? And I said, yes. There's always hope. And that table is a reminder that there's always hope. No matter how hard your family life is at this moment, no matter how broken your family and marriage is at this moment, when you see this table, it should show you there's always hope. I don't care how dark it is or how flooded it is. When you see this table, you should say, there is always hope in Christ for my brokenness. For my brokenness, there is hope. Christ, who freely offered up his life for your life. Christ, who went to the cross for your sins. Christ, who lived a life that you could not live. Christ, who died a death that you all should have died went to the cross for his enemies, not his friends. And when he went to that cross, he died for your past, present, and future sins have all been nailed to the cross. That means your sin debt has been paid in full, and you bear your sins no more. So if you've been convicted these these past four weeks, then guess what? Your sin is covered. Your sin is covered. It's covered. This table belongs to Christ, not to Alex, not to the village church. And so all baptized Christians are welcome to receive this meal. Those who actually be trusting Christ for their faith, who are willing to confess and repent of their sins, and who are members of a church that proclaim the gospel. Now, friends and neighbors, if you don't profess faith in Christ, we consider it an honor that you're here. And so we ask that you observe what takes place here, for this is a, a public display of our unity in Christ. And if you have questions of what it means to have saving faith in Christ, please come see me or one of the elders after the service, and we'll love to talk with you about the gospel, about what it means to be a believer in Christ.